Hi guys, on the podcast today we have Barry Blanton. Elizabeth and I were fortunate to have Barry as a guest and we know there are some unbelievable stories and experiences that he shares that you will be better for hearing. I know we were. Barry is the founder and owner of Blanton Advisors, which specializes in CFO business consulting services and provides customized business solutions based on proven financial leadership and business experience. Barry has a wide range of business, financial, and operational executive experience of more than 30 years in the banking, housing, wholesale distribution, and building products industries. He's got a lot of experience, diverse experience. He shares his leadership ideas and how they have shaped uh, and how they've been shaped over the course of his experience. And one that sticks out is the MBWA that he shares the management by wandering around, uh, which he delves into and how leaders can put that into practice. On the personal side, Barry has an incredible story of being a lymphoma survivor, how that changed his perspective on life, and really how he feels that cancer happened to him for a reason, which is incredible, uh, because he feels that he was meant to do good with his life and his experiences. Be sure to check out the show notes for a few links that we provided for Barry's weekly blog, The Monday Morning Minute, which we talk about later in the show and also his involvement in uh, LLS, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and then also the Woodlands Light the Night event. Before we get to the conversation, if you wouldn't mind sending us a review on iTunes or in the podcast app below, we really would love to hear from you and how we're doing. If you haven't subscribed to the Everson Cooper podcast, please do. That means every Wednesday morning you will wake up with a fresh new episode. And lastly, if you have any listener questions, please send them to elizabeth at eversoncooper.com and use the subject line Ask ESC Podcast or connect with us on Facebook and use the hashtag Ask ESC Podcast and we will feature your questions in an upcoming episode. Okay, back to Barry. We cannot say enough good things about him and our conversation we had with him, so we will let you get to it. Please enjoy our conversation with Barry Blanton. Welcome to the Everson Cooper podcast. We are entrepreneurs that are interested in what makes people successful. In this podcast, we sit down with a wide range of people with diverse perspectives and backgrounds. We dive into the obstacles that they've had to overcome, their successes, unique experiences, and everything in between. Our goal is to continuously learn from those around us and share their knowledge so that we can all find something that makes us better and makes those around us better. We hope you enjoy. Barry Bland, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So we're excited that you are here. You, I think you have a really awesome story. Uh, you have a lot of experience that I know that we're going to dig into. I think you have kind of a diverse set of experience. You haven't been with just one company or one you know, job or anything like that. You've got, uh, I think, and so that's going to have a, a lot of things that you're going to be able to, to offer and our listeners are going to, uh, uh, you know, learn from and, and be compelled by. But where I want to start, I think, is is a place that's near and dear to your heart, uh, something that um, is not really on the professional side, but you are a leukemia survivor. Um, and so talk a little bit about your journey there. You don't have to go deep into the details and, you know, all that, but just kind of give the listeners a little bit of the, you know, the background sure. um, on that. You know, just, sure. just briefly, if, you know, however, however long you want to 
you know, touch on that. So it's actually lymphoma. Okay, lymphoma. Both lymphoma and leukemia are blood cancers. Okay. That's what they share in common. And um, I am a 14-year non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. Good for you. I was diagnosed... So the, so the funny story, you talk about, uh, the, the funny story was that I can remember the day that I had surgery to remove a lump from my neck that they didn't know what it was, didn't know that it was cancerous at the time, was the day that they toppled, toppled the Saddam Hussein statue in Baghdad. Yeah. And the reason that I know that is because I, I had surgery at like 1 o'clock that day, and I was at home watching TV because I couldn't do anything and I couldn't eat. And they were doing news coverage of what was going on in the war. And that started what turned into a several-month process that turned into a diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in about June. And I went through six months of chemo and came out on the other side in 100% remission and have been there ever since. Good for you. Um, It's a life-changing experience, just the process. I did not have what I had was not considered life-threatening at the time. And frankly, I tolerated the chemo pretty well. But the type of cancer that I had is considered treatable but not curable. So it can come back. And even though that I'm 14 years out, I still go every two years for checkups because it can come back. But once I got past about 10 years, they feel a whole lot better about the fact that it won't come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, But it's an, it's an, it's changes your perspective to go through something like that. Oh, I bet. Yeah, I can't even imagine that, uh, having to deal with that personally. Um, and so I guess, talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, the when you went in for the appointment and it's you, you realize like, oh, okay, so this is what we're doing now. This is, this is a little bit of a life change. You know, I think the thing that hit me, the point that it hit me was when, you know, there, that, that's a staged product. It, it covered several weeks before I was ultimately diagnosed. But the thing that I remember the most was walking through a passageway from the parking garage into MD Anderson and walking under a sign that said, Welcome to MD Anderson Cancer Center. And I realized that I was there for my own cancer. That sort of is when it really hit me upside the head, sort of. So, and, and that was, it was eye-opening. I mean, it, it put a perspective, like I said, it... And for me, it was a huge faith opportunity, and I had to let go of some things because I'm a little bit of a type A personality and like to try to be organized and controlling and things like that. And I had to realize I had zero control over this, how the treatment went, what the outcome was, what the diagnosis was. All of those things were totally outside of my control. I could educate myself on them, but I really had no influence over them. Yeah. So it was a, uh, I had to let go. Sure, sure. Now, something you can control is what, uh, I guess, not necessarily the outcome, but what you did afterwards. And something that you did afterwards and, and continue to do, and you co-founded the Woodlands Light the Night. So talk a little bit about that. Talk what, um, where that idea came from, uh, your involvement in that, I guess, kind of what you guys have accomplished over the last couple of years and give, give our listeners and, and really myself too, uh, you know, some background on that. Cause that's, that's something that is amazing. You know, you're not just, uh, you know, a, a lymphoma survivor. Now you're someone who's doing something actively to kind of kick it into the pants. So an interesting thing about that, and I've seen in my years since what I went through, 
some people go through experiences like that and then choose to put them behind them and they don't even want to talk about it, much less be involved about in, in anything related to cancer going forward. That's not the choice I made. I, I decided that, you know, that happened to me for a reason. And what, what really happened, and I used to say this in the beginning of the early days of Like the Night, is that I don't want, I, I told you a minute ago that my disease is considered, I was told, I can remember the day that my wife and I were told, you have a disease that's treatable but not curable. And basically the doctor said that I can't tell you, I will never be able to tell you, he was looking at my wife, I will never be able to tell you that the cancer is not going to kill your husband until the day he dies on a tennis court. And I said, well, I don't play tennis. Does that help? But, and, and, but and anyway, the point is that we, did, we didn't have any control over that. But when I looked at it afterwards, I didn't want, I don't want my children or grandchildren to have to be told that they have a disease that's treatable but not curable. Mm-hmm. And that's really what motivated me to get involved with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And Light the Night is a nationally run program. I did not... I did not do anything to bring Light the Night to the Woodlands by myself. We, the, there was a walk in Conroe at the time, and a couple of local people who had lost a loved one to leukemia were involved. Um, Julie Peters and Julie Bell and myself helped bring Light the Night to the Woodlands for the first time in 2005. And I think what I'm the most proud of is that in 2005, we raised $31,000 this past year, just a few months ago, we raised $1.2 million. Holy cow, good for you. So what that amounts to is over time is over $7 million has been raised in Montgomery County uh, to cure blood cancers. And the cool thing about the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is that so much of the money goes to research because that's all we can do is research. The um, There's early detection doesn't matter lifestyle doesn't matter, exercise doesn't matter, what you eat doesn't matter. None of those things, you can't educate people to stay away from things that cause blood cancers. Blood cancers can happen, somebody can wake up with blood cancer tomorrow. And so that's why everything that we do through the LLS is focused on research for a cure. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So you went from 31,000 in 2005 to 1.2 million this this past year in 2018, mm-hmm. you that's that's amazing. If the story stopped right there, if we stopped if we stopped the recording, awesome. Well, just so you know that what that went from a grassroots committee with some local people that put the walk together and everything to a chapter driven, staff driven logistics, an executive committee with a huge team of volunteers and a year round effort. I mean, the what we did this year was largely attributable to a great. Uh, executive committee and the uh, walk chairman were co-chairs from the Howard Hughes Corporation this year, and they did a great job of helping us hit that $1.2 million. Good for you. That's incredible. You started something beautiful, and we're certainly in a community where everybody wants to be supportive of everybody else and what they're doing, and Mm -hmm. it's a very generous, very encouraging, very uplifting community. So you've done some beautiful things, and you you certainly got stuff started, and there's there's tremendous value in that, and you're making a difference. I know that when I, I mean, I just met you a couple months ago at a network in action meeting, thanks to Stacey Harris, which everybody knows, and they've certainly heard of her on our podcast, if nothing else. And I immediately just like all I heard were, first of all, beautiful things, and second of all, when we met, you just have this like 
aura and this passion and this excitement for the things that you're doing both with LLS and in your business and in the community. I know you're involved with the Vell Institute as well. And, you know, you're just doing great things and I love that. So I appreciate you for, of course, being here today, but the things that you're doing all the time to to make people better and impact them. It's well, just, it's very meaningful and it's awesome. I'll tell you a quick st- story about Stacy Harris. I don't know if I've told you this and how I first met Stacy. <clears throat> Stacy was in charge of a fundraiser for the American Cancer Society and she was doing a fashion show and she wanted all of her models to be cancer survivors. And somebody referred, actually, I think it was Julie Peters, referred her to me and she asked me to be in a fashion show. And I said, are you crazy? You talk about something outside of your comfort zone. No, thank you. I won't. (laughs) Needless to say, with the influence of Stacy and and how hard she is to say no to, I ended up walking down a runway as a model raising money for the American Cancer Society, which was a great cause. And that's how Stacy and I came to know one another and become great friends. (laughs) That's a great story. I love that. You really can't say no to Stacy. No. I mean, she tells you what to do, and you're like, okay, yes, ma'am, I'll call you when I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great. All right, so I want to get to, for our listeners, to put some context on what you're doing right now. Of course, you're, you're, you're constantly involved with LLS, but that's, you know, that's, that's your passion project. That's not your full-time thing. Your full-time thing is Blanton Advisors, uh, founded in 2010, uh, so talk a little bit about when you started it, and of course you have, as I alluded to earlier, you have just uh, a myriad of, of experience to, you know, that you use in, in your in your business. But you consult with small to medium sized businesses, um, more on I guess on the CFO side, and and, and I'll be quiet actually because you need to tell this. <laughs> I, I don't work for the company. Uh, you that know, was good. You were yeah. Doing good. <laughs> okay. Good. Good. All right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, tell tell us about Bland Advisors, uh, what you guys do, what's your what's your passion, um, and uh, kind of how how you stand out. What what do you do that you know is different from a lot of other folks? So, the number one thing that I would tell you is that our goal, our vision, is to empower entrepreneurs. We want to help entrepreneurs understand their business better know their financials better, make more educated decisions, help them run, grow, change, improve the business. So the real concept is to empower them to be able to do those things. A lot of small business people aren't inclined to like or care about or understand the financial side of their business. It could be that it's just not their favorite part of it. It could be that they're not good at it. Mm -hmm. Whatever the case may be, a lot of small business owners don't use financial reporting tools to help them improve the business. They make a lot of decisions based on how much cash that they have or maybe what the P&L says at the bottom of a QuickBooks report. And there's so much more that can be learned from good financial reporting and good accounting for how you can improve margins and improve review lines of business, make decisions about locations and make decisions about growth and lease versus purchase and a lot of different things that you can understand better if you have some sort of structure around the financial Mm -hmm. side of your business. And our ultimate goal with each client is to instill some discipline that they actually sit down and review financial statements on a monthly basis. 
A lot of small business owners don't do that. They just don't have, they're busy. They don't have the, yeah. and that's why I say discipline. And, and it's almost a forced discipline because if they have a meeting on their calendar with me, then they know we're going to go through their financials. And um, most of the time they learn something from sure. that. Sure. So that's, the, that's what it's about. Yeah, yeah. It started in 2010 uh, after a, a long career uh, with several different companies. Talk about that time. Uh, what what was your what was your spark? What um, you know was the excitement or the challenges uh, when you came into business when you when you opened Bland Advisors? So I had always been what I call a W two wage earner. I had worked for somebody else my entire life, mostly somewhat large institutions, large banks, uh, public companies. I'd worked for one small community bank at one time, but most of the companies that I'd worked for. Uh, were larger companies. And I had pretty much worked myself sort of out of a job at the last place that I, um, it was right after the, um, after the 08, 09 recession. Sure. And um, the company that I was with was focused on the home building industry, which crashed at that point in time. The, the business survived. I helped them through a tough time period and we kept the bank at bay for a while and ended up managing them through an asset uh, purchase but the new ownership wasn't a fit for me long term and I felt like having gone through that several times in my career mergers buyouts takeovers ownership changes I felt like I wanted at somewhat of a late stage in my career I felt like I wanted a little more control over my own destiny and I felt like if I had five clients or 15 clients and one of them changed their mind about wanting to work with me, then I could still survive as opposed to having working for one person. And if their ownership changed and changed their mind about working with me, then I had to go find a new job. That was the real impetus. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that it turned into what it turned into was because I have a passion for, I really enjoy working with small business people. I like helping them understand their business better. I like the variety of doing different things. I have all kinds of different clients, and that's fun. You know, you talk about the variety of my background. I was in banking. I was in manufactured housing. I was in industrial um, distribution uh, for home building products. Those are widely varied industries. Mm -hmm. I kind of do the same thing now. I have clients that are in the healthcare space. I have, I've had specialty retail clients. I've had restaurant clients. I have light manufacturing clients. Those are all very different. The fundamental thing that ties them together, they all have to have accounting in place. Sure. And they all have to have a way to be able to review their, to measure their success, to measure how well they're doing. Right, right. Yeah, and I think just... Looking at your background, looking at what you you know have done basically over the last you know three decades, you did have you do have a diverse background that you can bring to your what you're currently doing to your consulting. It's not that you just did one thing and you only have really one perspective maybe uh, that you can bring into this. And so yeah, as as you mentioned, you know you were with you know home builder, you were with banking, you were with industrial distribution, all very different business models. But as you said. Going back to it, the common thread is you have to figure out how, how to make money. You got to figure out how to keep your expenses at bay, how to raise your revenues, keep you know keep increasing your margins. And so having that diverse background, uh, I think definitely sets you apart 
and is, is something that not everyone can bring. You can't, you can't bring 30 years of a diverse background just, you know, at a snap of fingers. It takes 30 years. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's really good. Well, that, that is the business model. The model is that small businesses can fractionally or hourly engage me and gain access to 30 years worth of worth of experience exactly. without having to hire me or someone like me full time. Right. And so I can work for 10 or 12 or 15 clients in one month and bring that level of experience to all of those businesses. And from the business side, they're all getting that, but it's only for a fractional amount of what a true CFO would cost yep. them. Yep. What's the biggest thing that you saw or that you experienced that was a different between the difference between being a W two employee and then going out and working on your own? What kind of what did the, what was that transition like? I mean, thirty years of working for somebody else and then working for you. Were you had you I don't know Were you prepared for that? Were you good to go? And it was a pretty seamless thing. Or no, you were. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You seem very, um, I feel like it would be I've been be doing you. it for eight years now. The, so here's the thing. When you're self-employed, the, you have, there's, there's three components of the business. There's actually performing the work that you're getting paid for. There is sourcing the work, finding more of it, selling, networking, those kinds of things. That's another piece. And then the other piece is administer, the administration side of it, mm-hmm. the accounting and the payroll and the, that piece of it. So when you're self-employed, in the beginning, you do all three of those yourself, and you may do all three of them for a long time yourself. I still do parts of all three of those things. And it's tough to balance those three. The administrative one can get set aside a little bit until you get bigger. But the biggest challenge is producing work at the same time that you're trying to figure out where the next project or the next client or the next opportunity is coming from. Mm-hmm. And you've got to, you understand that, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. that, that you, it's easy to get wrapped up in the current project or the current client and finish that one and look up and realize that what's now what do I do? That's right. And so you've got to be you've got to be building a pipeline at the same time. So that's the to me that's the biggest challenge that I had initially. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I still have that challenge. I was going to say that's probably yeah, that challenge forever doesn't go away. Challenge. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that's that's never ending unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. No, so talk a little bit about that. What did what was it like when you maybe you got over the hump or that you realized that there were three separate segments of the business? And, and you're alluding to a, to a book I think near, almost every entrepreneur has read, The, the E-Myth. Uh, and you talk about you know, the technician, the manager, and the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And you have to have all three in a company, but they can't necessarily be all three of the same person because you're not really going to grow. But talk a little bit about what was that like um, maybe having to figure out, okay, I, today or this, for these couple hours, I can't be the technician. I got to go out. I got to be this. I got to be the salesperson. I got to fill up my pipeline and then I got to go back to work. And, and so talk about what you did, if you had any sort of techniques or strategies or people that you surrounded yourself with that, that kind of helped to guide you and mentor you to help you get over that, uh, you know, that hump. So a couple of things I did, <clears throat> I did have some good friends that were that helped me get excited about the growing side of the business. 
and helped me remember that I needed to be doing the sales and growth side. But I guess one of the things that it early on that changed what I initially thought I was going to do. I ran the numbers. I did some analysis before I started this. And I said, I'm going to do this on my own. I don't need to hire anybody. I can work X amount of hours a week. I can build for that and I can make a living. Well, six months after that, I hired a part-time contractor because you just can't, there's no room for growth if it's all about you. Sure. And now I have several part-time contractors and it's still too much about me. At, at this stage, eight years into it, I, I still probably, a lot of my work is till, still too centered on me, but I have learned and am trying to learn more about how to leverage through others. And generally, in, I, in, my, business market, in my business model, those are independent contractors that have different strengths and different skill sets that they can bring to the table for our clients. That was my biggest thing that I think that I realized early on that was going to be different than I first thought. Yeah, yeah. And that's a growing process still. I, I wrestle with that still. Yeah, yeah. So we kind of alluded to it. <clears throat> and this is one of the questions that we ask, you know, nearly all of our guests. And uh, I guess if you look at our, our bookshelves, I, I promise we did read these books. Uh, but we're always curious uh, because we're also, we're always trying to surround ourselves with more people that we can learn from, more books that we can read, the knowledge that we can, you know, use and apply. Uh, so talk talk a little bit about, and these could be books that you read, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago that are still impactful in your life, or it could be a, a book that you just read or you're, you're reading right now. Uh, so a couple books, or, I mean, if you've got 50 books, you know, have at it. If you've got a couple, you know, let's let's talk about it. That's funny. So a couple of things. One, I noticed some similar books on your bookshelf, some of that, some of the business books that I've read. But you opened the door to a book that I read a long time ago. And I don't know why this book has stuck with me, but there was a book that came out literally, it might have been the late 70s, it was in the 80s anyway, uh, In Search of Excellence by Peters and Waterman. And a lot of the concepts in that book I have kept with me for a long time. And what forced, and I didn't read that book on my own. I was a young banker, probably didn't think I needed to be reading a book. Mm -hmm. But the president of the bank that I worked for took us through a book read, a book study as a group of young, uh, young bankers. And that was the book. And we, ha and we had exercises associated with it and those kinds of things. So it, I guess it sank in more or it was forced to sink in more than had I read it on my own. So that book stuck with me for a long time. And then I went through a portion of my career where I probably didn't read that much. Um, and I've, and then, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, I developed more of a passion for leadership. And I have read a lot of leadership material in the last um, 10 or 15 years. I've read a lot of John Maxwell. The um, I've read a lot of Patrick Lencioni. I don't know if you know much about Patrick Lencioni, mm -hmm. but he writes fable-style books where he tells a story that has a moral to it, that has a business moral to it. It's really um, makes them very easy to read, but they're very practical. He's got six, probably six or seven books okay. um, that I really like. Yeah. So those are some of the books that I've, that I've read more recently. So go back to In Search of Excellence. That's a book I've I vaguely heard of. I don't know a lot of the premise of it. 
Talk a little bit about that. I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot to quiz you or anything like that, but that's I, I don't know much about that book, so I'm really curious there. There's a couple of things. That, here's a couple of takeaways from that. So there was um, these excellence awards. There used to be awards. I can't remember the gentleman's name that the award was named after, but there were excellence awards in industry that were built after this book. Okay. And the book was was written about excellent companies, a little bit like Jim Collins' examples in Good to Great, but more, uh, but it was it predated Jim Collins' book um, by a long period of time. But a couple of things that I've taken with me from In Search of Excellence back from that time, there was one concept called MBWA, and it simply means management by wandering around. And the idea is, if you're holed up in your office, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what people are doing. You don't know what their frustrations are. You don't know how the customers or clients are relating to them. You don't know if they're really working or they're overworked or underworked. You don't know. So literally, depending upon your environment, it could be manufacturing, it could be cubicles, it could be um, a sales team. But if you're not in touch with them, managing by wandering around and being with them, then you don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. That, that was one thing. And the other thing, there was a concept in the book, and they call them skunk works. And there's, been a, there's probably a more modern terminology for that. But the example was, I think, of a, a company like 3M or somebody like that that encouraged people to have side projects that they worked on on their own that had nothing to do with the current company goal or project that they were working on. Mm -hmm. And this, there was multiple examples of how these underground projects, or skunk works as they called them, actually turned into things that became projects that were profitable that the company pursued. Mm -hmm. And so the, the concept was don't discourage people from chasing these little ideas that they think might be a good idea because those kinds of things turn into something. Yep. So those are two of, the two of the concepts from the book that I do still remember. You're more recently, the last 10 or 15 years, you've gotten more into leadership. And that's always something that we are interested in um, is surrounding ourselves with people that want to be leaders, uh, that are actively leaders. And I think going back to what you've done with LLS, with, with Light the Night, I think that takes a lot of leadership to grow it from this small you know, idea of a committee of a small couple people. Now it's, I mean, it's a huge year-round organization that you're involved with, and you have to have good leadership in order to make that successful, to grow it and be successful. So talk a little bit about, I mentioned John Maxwell, range of, of great leadership uh, things to offer. And I know that you're involved you know, with, with John Maxwell. Um, so talk, talk a little bit about what you've developed, uh, maybe some of your own ideas or some of the ideas that you've learned from other people that you apply uh, you know, with your company uh, with, you know, in terms of leadership. So a couple of things. You know, I guess while I, I focused more on leadership from the standpoint of speaking and writing and reading about leadership in the last 10 or 15 years, but I also can trace my leadership roots, if you will, back to being a Boy Scout in high school. Um, I'm an Eagle Scout, and I had leadership roles in scouting for many years, and I had a great mentor and a scout leader um, for many years. And I think that's probably one of the places that 
real leadership in learning how to move people towards a common goal. Mm -hmm. Back then, the common goal might be getting from point A to point B or building this, that, or the other. But the idea was you're moving people towards a common goal. And and so I've always that's always been I think a part of who I who I've been. I've just in in my more recent years I think my interest in leadership is that I believe that first off I believe we're all leaders. Some of us more proactively, some of us more formally by title or position, but we're all leaders in some form or fashion. We're leaders in our home or in our church or in our family or in our. small group or in our neighborhood association. We're leaders somewhere, and Mm -hmm. there are people that are looking up to us and watching what we say and do in all of those different roles. So when I talk about leadership and I look at a room and I ask people, how many of you consider yourself leaders? If somebody doesn't raise their hand, I don't think they're being real honest with themselves about what our role is. Now, to the degree that we to which we take leadership might be different. Everybody might take that differently, but everybody's a leader in in some form or fashion. Um, You know, I think that one of my key things about leadership is consistency. I believe that leaders need to be consistent. I just think that there's a Maxwell quote that says, when people stop knowing what to expect from you, they won't expect anything. And if you answer the same problem one way one week and a different way the next week, then you're undermining your own leadership because people will you, you people will not respect you if you're not consistent. Mm-hmm. So I think consistency is one of the biggest takeaways that I've that I that I believe in about leadership. So you mentioned Boy Scouts. Uh, you know that's something that, you know, obviously, you know, Boy Scouts. You do it. You know, you're younger, and, and when you're growing up, and you know, into your adolescence, and being an Eagle Scout. That I mean, that's commitment. That is that's a very big accomplishment. My stepsister um, was the Girl Scout equivalent of, of the Eagle Scout. I'm forgetting what that um, terrible. I'm a, I'm a terrible stepbrother now. I'm forgetting what that <laughs> is. But nonetheless, I mean, it was a lot of commitment. I remember her and my mom. I mean, it was you know late nights, doing stuff on the weekends, camps, and, and things like that. So it's not just, you know, for, for people, and of course I wasn't a Boy Scout, so I don't, um, you know, of course know firsthand. That is, a, that's a, it's years, many, many years of, of commitments and, and leadership qualities and things that you had to do to, to earn that. And that is a big, that is a big honor. And I've met a lot of other people that have been Eagle Scouts as well. And that's something that you're always proud of. Because it's that's it's, true. it's something that you you Sticks had to work a long time. Yeah, yeah. That's true. yeah. So so good for you. That's that's a really good accomplishment. And that is something you should always be proud of. That. So I wanted to go back to um, kind of when you first got started. Of course, I, I think this might be had been after you were uh, an Eagle Scout. But so you graduated from University of Texas, mm-hmm. uh, late seventies, early eighties. Um, kind of talk about you know growing up, um, you know, going to the University of Texas. What did what was that time like for you for for what you wanted to do you know personally professionally you know what were some of your goals back then uh, that you know whether it was the degree that you wanted to get or the job you wanted to get you know once you're out of school or, or whatever talk a little bit about that and maybe is are are there still some similarities to now like yeah man I've really stuck with that and I'm and I'm darn proud that I did 
So there's a couple of stories with that. I thought from a relatively young age that I wanted to be an architect. And I got accepted to the School of Architecture at the University of Texas, which I could not do the de today. There's no way I would get in. Uh, but I got accepted to the School of Architecture at the University of Texas, and I did not last in that. I, I love that. I still enjoy it. I like the concept of it. I wasn't dedicated or hardworking enough to do that. And I kind of wanted a life outside of the School of Architecture building. And the people that were doing well in class slept in that building. And so I wasn't one of those people. <laughs> so I changed majors after a year and a half. And um, I took a, uh, after a year and a half, I got out of architecture, took a semester, kind of do whatever I wanted to, take whatever I wanted to. And then I focused on a business degree in finance. And I do still use that. Of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not a CPA. I'm not an accountant. And back to what you talked about earlier, I consider myself more of an operational CFO because of my varied background. But I did get a de uh, finance degree, and I have used that off and on through the bulk of my career. And, um, but I graduated without a job, came home without a job, wanted so bad to stay in Austin I went like four interviews deep to, to go to work at a bank. Somehow or another, I got interested in banking in the last year of college, probably. And I went about four interviews deep to, to work at a bank in Austin, and I didn't get the job. And I was devastated and didn't have any other real leads. But I came home, and within a month, had two job offers from local banks and ended up starting a banking career back in my hometown. I went to work at a bank in Conroe, Texas, where I was born and raised. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's funny. I mean, we're we're years removed now from uh, you graduated from college, but yeah, you you start college. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna do this. We're gonna do this. And when I graduate, we have everything lined up, and it's you know, it's like bowling, and you know, just knock the pins down. And uh, yeah, very rarely does it go like that. And mm -hmm. you know, of course, uh, you know, we were fortunate. Relatively soon after college, we got jobs that turned into careers but that's changed we're not in those careers anymore if anyone listens to this podcast knows that we used to be teachers i was a teacher for five years she was a teacher for six years and we were incredibly passionate about it and just you know up to our eyeballs in it for a number of years and then we realized okay now it's time to do something different the path is the path has changed uh so i'm always curious when you know people went to college and um, you know, what was that time like for, you know, for you? What were your goals like? So, so why University of Texas? Did you grow up UT fan? Are you a Longhorn? Are you a sports guy? Or, you know, or just that was the best college All for you? All the above. Yeah, okay. Yeah, my dad went there. Okay. And I, I, don't, <clears throat> I don't know. I can't remember thinking of going really anywhere else. So I guess I, I, I kind of was raised that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, always curious because and I, I still bleed burnt orange. Good for you. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Last time I met with you, you had all burnt orange on. So yeah, it was a Friday in football season, probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I of course I yeah I'm a University of Iowa graduate and I, and I was the same way. I ended up playing junior college baseball, so it kind of took me off the path, you know, for a little while. But I still I always wanted to go to the University of Iowa, and so I, I don't think it really mattered. 
uh, you know, how I got there or when I got there, but I, I knew that I wanted to graduate yeah. from the University of Iowa. So that's, you know, I always want to, I'm always curious for, for people that, you know, went to college if, you know, if it was just a practical choice or if it was a, if it was a passionate choice. Well, you know, now that you mentioned that, it reminds me of the other piece, and this goes back to the leadership thing, but um, I don't know how this came about, but after being in college for, a year and a half, I found myself, I was offered a resident assistance job. I became a resident assistant. I ended up being the head resident of the dormitory. So I was a head resident of a dormitory and had 13 guys working for me before I graduated from college. <laughs> Good for so, you. So, I mean, that was, you know. You were early on. You were leaving. And yeah, I guess. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. That's great. <laughs> All right, so I read an article that you had published on LinkedIn. It was about gratitude. And... Gratitude is something that Elizabeth and I just just recently, within the last you know maybe two years, we have really been more purposeful about and mindful about, and you know literally having a, a gratitude you know journal every day. We're doing something. We're you know we're we're you know we're literally you know sitting down whether it's you know when we pray or whether we you know journal or whatever, um, you know being grateful you know, showing gratitude for the things that we have, for where we are and where we're going. And so in your article that you, you published, you, you talked about that. You talked about gratitude being impactful in your life. And so talk, talk a little bit more about that. Um, when was the idea of gratitude, I guess, maybe, you know, revealed to you? How do you apply it in your life? How has it, um, you know, changed, uh, you know, over the course of time for you? Well, I'm not sure that I'm as good at that as I should be. The, but clearly after my cancer was a, a huge opportunity yeah. for, you know, that was a faith opportunity to go through, but it was a, but it was a gratitude issue too, to be thankful. And, and that puts things in perspective of just all the other things that one should be thankful for. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame that we need something like that to do that, but sometimes it, we do. Um, <clears throat> But I've gone through phases of when I'm good about being thankful for what I have and, and when I'm not. And I just think that what you all are doing is a good example. You you do have to be purposeful about it because it's easy to forget all of the wonderful things that we have and that we're blessed with. And it's easy to focus on the things that we're frustrated with or that we don't have or that we wish were different. We all seem to get tied up on those things and we lose sight of the things that 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 we should be grateful for and to me in the point of that was uh, tied with thanksgiving week just a simple reminder that we shouldn't necessarily only be thankful at thanksgiving for obvious reasons we should be thankful year-round but you know there's a lot of things that we have to be thankful for that we take for granted and i know that's said all the time people say you know, you want to be thankful for the things, but you really do take them for granted if you're not careful. So, but I'll tell you that a story behind that whole blog, if you will, if that's what, I, and it started out as an email distribution list, but it's it's called the Monday Morning Minute, and I started writing it over ten years ago, and I wrote it at a company that I worked for at the time in the manufactured housing business, and we were going through some tough changes in the industry and within our own company. And the idea was to give people a little bit of a positive motivator at the beginning of the week. And it grew into more of a challenging motivator. And we ended up shutting that company down. 
and we laid people off in phases over time. It was a large company. It was a subsidiary of a public company. But as people were leaving the company, they would say, keep me on your Monday morning minute list. Keep, I want to keep getting those. So the company went away, and I still had 30 or 40 people that wanted the email, and now I have 600 people that are on the email list. Wow. And it's just become something that... Um, I want to try to help others grow and challenge themselves. And almost always it's something that I have either learned something from myself or that I'm still struggling. A lot of times it's something that I'm struggling with myself that I might write it as if I know what I'm doing, but I really don't um, because it's something that I need to be reminded of. Sure. sure. So that's the whole impetus of, of that article in general. And and I should probably write it something about gratitude more often than I do, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's such a that's a really cool story that it just kind of it started as one thing. And of course, you know the, the company has, has you know, moved on, shut down, but it's it's now has morphed into you know what it is today, and more than six hundred subscribers. That's that's incredible. Good for you. You know you're onto something when <laughs> you have you know people that are you know shuffling out of a company and say no, I want to keep in contact with you because this is you know some you know some good stuff. Uh, so no, good for you. So I want to, I, I want to keep talking about that a little bit, because I imagine is that challenging to come up with some content every week, or is it just one of those things like you know what, man, I it, it'll it'll come to me whether it's you know a couple sentences or you know really long paragraph, whatever. Talk about a little bit about your process there for, for well, a week. Well, it varies. Yeah. Yes, it is hard to come up with content sometimes, and. Um, and I recycle them occasionally, but I usually update them when I do. But the, the easy thing is that life happens and there are lessons in life all the time. And usually there's something that has happened within the last few weeks or something that I come across that's either a motivational piece of material or an actual experience that I can build on and turn into something. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's it's something that... I enjoy doing. I don't do it very far in advance a lot of times, and um, and yeah, sometimes I can I can be at the, at the last minute and wonder what I'm going to talk about. But like I said, there's almost always some sort of a of a quote or an anecdote or a life experience mm-hmm. that can that something can be learned from. So I want to share today's because I got I get I get the Monday morning minute. And um, been forwarding them to Andy, and I like it because one, it's it certainly is a quick. You know, you're checking your email Monday morning. I got this at four thirty in the morning. I'm maybe guessing that you scheduled that. I don't know. Maybe you sent it out at four thirty. But here we are reading this, and it's just a great way to start your day. So, yours today is to consider your initial reaction. It is easy to initially overreact, bite back, or even yell in certain circumstances. I have done it. We all have. I suggest a little different approach. Resist the urge to vent and overreact. First, consider what will be gained from your reaction. Is there anything positive to come from it? Will something be improved? Anything gained? Will the outcome or the next step change or become easier? Your feeling better is not a good enough answer. We all need to vent, but biting someone heads off, someone's head off is not a good form of venting. We should vent with close friends, confidants, or mentors. Overreacting seldom has a positive benefit, so why do it? Save the energy. Preserve the relationship. 
consider a more measured and appropriate response at a more appropriate time. And I love that. And I, I, one, it's just great that you do this, but two, it's just such an easy, like, yes, you're right. Overreacting is not going to get me anywhere. It's not going to fix this situation. It's not really going to make me feel better because now I have a new problem, right? Because now I've upset this person and ruined this relationship or put it on the rocks and I don't know, I just think it's great, and I think what you're doing is great, and everybody should subscribe to the Monday Morning Minutes. Yes. Thank you. Including Thank me. You. you just outed me. You just said I, I yeah, forwarded them. So I forwarded you. I know. we got to get you in there. <laughs> we got to get you in there. We'll, oh, we'll include great. the uh, subscription link in our promotion yeah. of this podcast. Well, yeah, and we'll, it's we'll, on we'll Facebook, too. Monday we'll Morning Minutes on Facebook, too. Okay, perfect. Um, All right, so I want to get to a couple of our uh, frequently asked questions. I want to be mindful of your time. Um... One of the questions I guess that we've we've added over time, we didn't certainly you know keep this, we didn't have this uh, always, but if you're familiar with the term chronotype, uh, and ultimately it, this this one is based off of a book, and it's the power of when, w w h e n, and it's you know okay, well when should you wake up? When should you eat? When should you you know exercise? Daniel Pink. Everyone, yeah, I think so, absolutely. Um, and uh, so everyone is a little bit different. And so you know, for me, my chronotype is I'm a lion. I, I like to wake up early. I like to, I go to the gym in the morning. I like to get things done early in the morning because by about like 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, I'm ready to wind down. I'm ready to, you know, call it a day. Elizabeth is a little bit later. She's a bear. You know, like 10 a.m., 11 a.m. is her peak time. And, uh, you know, she's, she's raring to go. She's still like wanting to, you know, work at like 8.30, 9 o'clock at night where I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. So... If you, I, I, you, you alluded that you are familiar uh, with the chronotype. So what is, your, what is your chronotype? Well, actually, the book is on my desk. I have not read it yet. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and I actually was not familiar with the, with the chronotypes. Hmm. But I can tell you that I'm an early riser. Okay. And seldom am I working at 8.30 or 9.30 at night. <laughs> now, that's not without exception, but I'm probably not working very efficiently if I am working. Sure. Um, I get up pretty early, and I, I like to I like to go to the gym or get a run in, and I like to be at the office before everybody else is, and if I can get an hour and a half of work in before anybody else gets there, then that's pretty good time for yeah. me. Yeah. So it's, and I'm I'm not <clears throat> sure that I've always been that way. I guess really I have been. Oh, um, so I, I'm not a night owl from the standpoint of working late and staying uh, uh, up late all the time. So, um, so if that makes me a lion, then I'm probably a lion. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's you know whatever your whatever your peak time is, um, you know whatever when you feel most motivated, most energized. Um, yeah, that's kind of your chronotype, and that's kind of the point of the book is to, you know. Obviously, if you're working a nine to five job and you know you can't always be a night owl because you know you got to be there at nine a.m. Uh, but it is kind of like it's a little bit more of a lifestyle design type book of well, okay, if you can uh, in in an ideal world, if you could design when you went to bed, when you woke up, when you did your work, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You're an early riser. You know, you're a morning person. You go to the gym. If you don't mind, talk a little bit about your morning routine. What what does that look like? Um, you know, how structured is it? Does it change a little bit every day? Uh, or, or are you a routine guy? I'm pretty routine. Yeah. 
people probably think I'm more routine than I really am. Uh, for some reason, I think people think that. But I'm a pretty structured person. I generally get up within 30 or 40 minutes at the same time. I guess I sleep lighter on weekends. But I do try to work out. I try to either run or go to the gym four mornings a week at least, four or five mornings a week. And uh, I try to include some quiet time in that. I try to include some prayer time in that. I'm, and I run through cycles of being better at that than others. Uh, I think we all do. I, that's not something I've been able to stick with forever. But um, over the last few years, I've tried to build some of that in. And so that, so from that standpoint, you know, some mornings I end up taking my time a little more so than others. just depends on what's on the calendar and where I have to be first thing. But uh, at the core of getting up early and, eat, and exercising and having some quiet time and some prayer time, those things I stick to pretty closely. Yeah. How long have you kind of done that general routine? Is that something that's been newer or later in your life, or is that something you kind of have always done? It's probably been 10 or 12 years. Okay. Yeah, it's quite some time. It's a long time. Yeah. So I started doing something. I was challenged at my church back in 2000. It's a long time ago, longer than 12 years ago, to do something called the one-year Bible and where you read through the Bible in a year and it's an actual, it's a book that's actually structured that way by days. And, um, and I didn't do it the first year. I tried and I think by May I was off the bandwagon. <laughs> uh, but I have subsequently done it several times. And um, not every single year, but I've subsequently done it several times. And that helps, uh, that helps me structure that, um, that quiet time in the morning. Yeah, so. yeah. good for you. I want to talk a little bit about success. Um, kind of the, the, the intro, um, you know, opening reel, I guess, of our podcast, you know, talks a little bit about the mission of our podcast and it's to, uh, you know, find out what makes people successful. Everyone is a little bit different. Everyone's path to success and everyone's, uh, definition of success is a little bit different. So if for, for you, uh, whether it's a person or whether it's, um, you know, uh, a, a vision or whatever. Talk a little bit about what for you success looks like, and, and maybe a little bit about um, you know if there's, um, I, I guess, someone who that is a mentor or someone that you have grown up not idolized, but you look at it like, man, that person seems like they have it figured out. That is my or part of my definition of success. So I saw this question. When you, when you sent me these, and I, I thought it was very interesting, and I think I answer this very differently now than I would have maybe as recently as a few years ago, and certainly um, differently than when I, I was younger. And it may, be, seems like, it may seem like an odd answer. My answer is w- what makes you successful is someone, I think there's two pieces to it. One, someone that is comfortable with who they are. And two, that you're doing some sort of good. And neither one of those are tied to career. Neither one of those are tied to economics or finances. Um, Neither one of those is tied to your house or your title. You know, I just think it's important to be comfortable with who you are and where you are and what you're doing in life. And I probably wouldn't have said that a good portion of my life. I just think that where I am now, I just think that that's something that's important. And I think it is what, you know, success is personally defined. 
And to me, it, it's being comfortable with who and where you are. And then the second piece of that is I just think that we all ought to be doing some sort of good for the world around us. And that can take on, as you all know, a lot of different facets. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's important to me. Everybody says give back. I just think it means do some good somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So somebody ought to be somebody ought to be different from having in, come across me in their lifetime. Whether they read the Monday Morning Minute or they heard me speak or they saw me help raise money or I hired them at their first job. You know, those are all very different things. But somebody ought to be different and hopefully improved for having come across me in their lifetime. Yeah, yeah. I think that definition of success is one of the best I've ever heard. Mm-hmm, I agree. That's, that's incredible. And uh, I mean, I, I would agree. I don't. I don't know if I could have articulated it like that. But I completely agree that if you're if you're comfortable with who you are and you're doing some good, yeah, I I think you're being pretty darn successful. Yeah. Me too. Anything else? Elizabeth? No, that was beautiful, and I think that's a perfect place to to cap this. You've been very generous with your time and your stories and all of the things, and we're super grateful for you. And I know that. Or better for you. I know. I certainly know I am, which is why I said we have to have Barry on our podcast <laughs> if he'll do it. I mean, we just, I just think the world of you, and I'm very grateful to to know you and continue to get to know you. So thank you for being here with us today. And sharing. well, thank y'all. I am honored to have been here. I uh, enjoy the opportunity to share a few thoughts. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Barry. We really enjoyed it.